this morning, uh, to kind of top off this series on the Grand Invitation, this Evangelism 101 series, I wanted to close off, not necessarily with a, an exegete, a, a portion of Scripture, so I, I can't say turn in your Bibles yet, but we're going to look at Scripture, but we're not going to, this isn't an expository sermon, it's more of a topical sermon. And so we're going to be looking at the subject of witnessing, and I thought, what a better way to end this series on evangelism, we've given you some of the theology of what we believe in the gospel, the mandate, why we should go, uh, why we should share the gospel to a lost and dying world. But now I want to look at some very practical application of all that we've learned the last six sessions together. And so today we're going to be looking at answering people's questions and objections. The one thing I've found is when in my own heart and in the hearts of others who have gone out, one of the main fears that people have about sharing their faith in Christ with a lost person, someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is what if they ask that question and I don't have an answer? That just paralyzes people. It just scares them to death. And so what they end up doing is saying, I just won't go there. So they never share their faith because they're always afraid that somehow someone's going to be smarter than them. And in my case, that's not hard. Everybody's smarter than me. So, it's, you know, everybody I talk to usually has some more wits about them than I do. So that's, that's, I threw that out a long time ago as an excuse. But the important thing is, is don't be fearful of that. The Bible clearly says that God will give you that answer. Even though you may not have the answer to their gotcha question. And sometimes that's what people want to do. They want to pose a question. Maybe sometimes people will say, well, I don't even believe in God. Or, you know, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow these poor, innocent children suffering all over the world? Why does he allow that if your God is so great? So people raise things like that. And we're going to cover a little bit about how to deal with that. Um, And so rather than be embarrassed yourself or, more importantly, cause embarrassment for the cause of Christ... By not knowing what to say when these certain questions or objections are are raised. Or by giving them maybe an answer that's really maybe not correct. Or an answer that, that compromises in some way. A lot of us... Rather than do that, we just say, you know what, I'm just going to stay quiet about Jesus. I'm just going to live my life, and if they can't see it the way I'm living it, then that's their problem. But we've gone over the mandate that we have to share our life, not just by through the lives, our faith, not through the lives that we live only, but by the words that we speak. And so we're called to be preachers of the gospel, not just someone who stands behind a pulpit, but every day when you go out into this lost and dying world, you are... Someone who is relaying a message to someone who needs to hear the gospel. And the question is, what is the message you're relaying? Well, with all the work we've done on this series, hopefully you have the nuts and bolts of that. But some general guidelines to start off with. Uh, Just some general guidelines. First of all, and, and this seems pretty basic and pretty understandable, but I just need to cover it. First of all, always be courteous, be polite, gentle, be kind. Remember, people that are not in Christ, people that have not come to Christ, are not our enemies. They're not our enemies. They're just lost people. (laughs) They don't have a hope. They don't have a prayer in this world without Christ. And that should burden our soul to share Christ with them. And so we don't need to look at them as somebody who's, you know, our enemies. Um, Paul wrote 2 Timothy 
to second, in Timothy, he wrote 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, 26. He wrote to Timothy, he said, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. We're not going out there to win the debate. But be kind to all, he says in verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. Able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness. I want you to focus in on that word. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps... Listen to this. God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You know, sometimes when people are kidnapped and they're held for a prolonged period of time, they have a certain syndrome that they develop. And they, they develop this syndrome and they, they become sympathetic toward their captors because they've been captive for so long. Stockholm syndrome. And, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a, I think that's what they call it. It's kind of an important thing to understand that, you know, you would be held captive by somebody, but then you begin to feel sympathetic toward them. But see, in the world, that's how a lot of lost people feel. Uh, First Peter Chapter 3, verse 15, and you notice the, the, uh, the similarity here. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, set him apart as Lord in your hearts. And then he says, always be able to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And do that, Peter says, with, there's that word again, gentleness and reverence. Those two Verses, those two portions of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, have that word in common, that word gentleness. What does that mean? It means be gracious, be kind. Even if the other person is rude, even if the other person is obnoxious. The only way you can do that, the only way you can return kindness for an insult or injury or evil is by having Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can't do that. That's not your natural reaction in the flesh. Your natural reaction in the flesh is to give them a piece of your knuckles. You know, somebody's going to mouth off to me. That's what you want to do. But the Spirit of God, because you possess the Spirit of God as Christians, tells you, no, that wouldn't be the proper reaction. You need to be gentle with them. So Paul says, don't be quarrelsome. Don't argue with people. That's not a way to win people to Christ. That's not a way to make a lasting impression on someone for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, granted, you may have some great arguments. You may be able to go out there and with your apologetic background, giving that defense, you may be able to just mow people over with your arguments and make them feel this small. And you may win the argument in the end. But guess what? You've probably lost that person in a big way. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to come across as contentious or argumentative. Because when you do that, what do you do? You're putting up a barrier. You know, we're not called to build barriers with the world. We're called to build bridges. That doesn't mean we compromise. We're not compromising anything. But we need to realize that the only message that could save their souls is a message that we possess. And so are we going to look at them across the gulf of sin and, and say, yeah, I'm glad they're over there and not over here? Or are we going to say, how can we get over there and relate to them a message that could save their soul from impending eternal wrath and judgment from God? Don't be demeaning. 
And you can do that in a couple ways. You can do that by your words. You know, use words that non-Christians wouldn't understand. And then, oh, you don't know what that means, <laughs> right? You don't go to church. Well, let me tell you what that, that's, that's very, you put people off that way. Not only by your words, but sometimes you can just be demeaning by your body language, right? My wife knows me very well. She'll ask me a question, and sometimes I'll, <sighs> what am I doing? I'm not just collecting my thoughts. I'm going, are we really going down this road again? You really have to ask me this question. I mean, all this stuff's running through my mind. And she'll call me out on it. What kind of response? I didn't say anything. You don't have to say a thing. I can read you like a book. And so that's tough. But so can other people. So when they ask the, maybe the question to you that seems silly or obnoxious or whatever, don't roll your eyes. Don't, oh, I heard this one before. Oh, a good, you know, just be gracious. Be kind. Um, you can affirm to people when they ask you questions, you know, thanks for asking that question. That's a great question. You know, I, it shows me that you're thinking about these things. And you can affirm them and, and kind of lead them down that path where you'll be able to answer their question and maybe they'll be a little more ready to hear your answer. Now, let me say this. We all don't know all things. And like I said, there's a lot of people out there that are very intellectual, very smart people, and you're going to share the prospect of coming to Christ and repenting of their sins, and they're going to laugh at you out of their intellectual background and maybe mock you, or, or maybe they have studied this and, and they're so far trenched in what they believe, they, in their mind, have a list of questions, got you questions, and so they ask you that question that you, no one could answer. No one, at least here on this earth. And the way I respond to those questions, and we'll look at some of those this morning, a little later on, is, you know what, why you got me there? <laughs> That's a really good question. I've even thought of that question before. And you know what, I, I, I don't necessarily have the answer for you, but I can do some research and, you know, would you be willing to get together again and see what I can come up with for that question? Um, and then make sure, obviously, you follow through with them. Don't let them hang there. But if you struggle with an issue, the best policy is always honesty. Just be honest. You don't have to manufacture some answer to try to impress them. Your impression is not going to win them to Christ. The truth of God's word is going to win them to Christ. The power of the spirit is going to win them to Christ. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, when people raise the, the question of God being a loving God and, you know, there's little children suffering everywhere, how do you, you know, I'll just tell them, you know what? The problem of, of children suffering around the world is a difficult one. It's very difficult. Um, I've wrestled with it personally. But you know what? Here's how I work through it. Would you, would you mind me sharing with you some of the answers that I've come up with? And don't be, you know, flip with your answers like, oh, I already figured that out. But, you know, be, be compassionate. Be understanding with them. Because if you dismiss their question too easily or too quickly, the person kind of gets the impression that, you know what, you're, you don't really care what they think. All right? But if you take some time and don't just brush them off, um, now, on the other hand, don't be like a machine gun out there, you know, just firing off your rounds, mowing people down with all your answers uh, to finish off your opponent. That's not a good approach either um, because that person's not going to feel understood. They're not going to feel like you even cared to listen to them. You need to listen to people's concerns and clarify 
their questions with more questions. Um, Sometimes it's good even to put their question aside until later. Say you're talking with someone and you have limited time with them and, you know, you're sharing the gospel and maybe you're halfway through and they're listening to your testimony. They're listening to you maybe share some verses with you. And then I've had this happen. You know, what about my Aunt Edna? You know, she died an atheist. Is she in heaven? And you're going, it's nothing to do really with what we're talking about, yet it does in their mind. So if you go down that road, who knows where it's going to end, right? So, you know, you know that's, that's a really interesting and, and caring concern you have. Because the one thing it, it, it tells me is that you believe in eternity. Do you believe there? And Edna's somewhere. And, you know, I'll just say, you know, ultimately that's in the hands of God. But would you mind if I, I continued? Because the message I'm sharing with you shows you how to prepare your heart for that time that even your Aunt Edna met. That day when you will pass from eternity, or from this life into eternity. And a lot of people, you know, if, if you have a somewhat relationship with them, they're not going to be rude. No, tell me about it. They'll go, okay, okay. You know, they'll just kind of go on. And so you'll continue to share the gospel with them. Um, because sometimes those questions take you off course of the gospel. And so you want to be able to correct without demeaning their question. Um, a lot of times, it's good to say something like, you know, I'd like to finish sharing how... You can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And if that question is an issue when I'm done, then we can, then we can cross that bridge. And, and I'd be more than happy to try to answer that question. And most people would say, oh, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, and if you sense that the person is raising objections, and there's people out there that do this all the time, as a smokescreen. They want to divert the conversation. They don't want to talk about their sin. They don't want to talk about a Savior. They're raising up all kinds of questions. The best way to kind of allow those people to show their true colors, is ask them a question like this. You know what? You, you ask me, you, you repetitively ask me all these questions that really don't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. Can I ask you a question? Sure. If I can give you a reasonable answer to all the questions that you have, are you saying that you'd become a Christian? And usually, with someone with ulterior motives, that stops them dead in their tracks. Because if you've correctly shared the gospel with them, some, I had one to do this with me. They said, well, okay, uh, that's a good question. But you just told me that to become a Christian, to become a follower of Christ, I have to submit my entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have to follow him as Lord. Is that what you told me? And when I say, yeah, they'll simply say, yeah, I'm not ready to go there. <laughs> so then you say, well, you know what? That's okay. Uh, when you're ready, let me know, because I have the answers for you. And then you just, you know, you don't have to end it in a big, big uh, battle. And so it's important, first of all, there to make sure that you're, you're, you're being polite, you're being kind, you're being gentle. Secondly, always try to steer the conversation to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the issue, not you, not your church, not your background. If Jesus is who he claimed to be and who scriptures proclaim him to be, God in human flesh who died for our sins and was raised bodily on the third day from the dead, most objections shrink to nothing at that point. If they believe all that stuff, then their objections are just going to fall away because God is working in their heart. 
So try to steer the conversation to Christ. And then thirdly here, just way of introduction, keep in mind that you're talking with a sinner who needs a Savior. That's who you're talking with. Someone who doesn't know Christ doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have the privilege of understanding God's Word. Whether that person has the intellect of a genius, whether they're an intellectual atheist or an uneducated criminal in prison, it makes no difference because they have the same need. They have the same need. They have the need to have their sins forgiven before they stand before God in eternity in judgment. And you know what? We have the greatest news in all the world for that sinner. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus came into the world to save, what? Sinners. To save sinners. That's good news for someone who's steeped in their sins and needs a Savior. So it's not always necessary to answer all the person's questions before they trust in Christ. There's a lot of people, myself included, I came to Christ with a lot of questions. But you know what? God showed me my sin, and he showed me my inability to deal with my own sin. And as a result of that, I cried out to the Savior, and Christ, God, saved me. And see, a lot of times when you are saved, when, when, when you trust in Christ, a lot of the questions you had before kind of melt away. Because now you have a source to answer those questions, the Word of God. Whereas before, maybe you had some questions about that. And so we're going to look at some very practical things here. But we need to stick to that main issue, that the person you're talking to is a sinner, and Jesus Christ is the only Savior for sinners. So we need to point them to Christ. We need to exalt Christ in our conversations with them. Well, let's look at some particular questions, and this is in your outline there, some objections concerning God. How many times have you shared your faith and someone says, well, I don't believe in God? Well, what do you do? Okay, well, I'll move on. You know, um, usually people who say they don't believe in God are claiming to be atheists. They're not atheists because they've thought it through. They've not thought this process through and concluded in all their intellectual thought that atheism is the best logical, rational explanation for the universe and for all the life on this planet. They just, that's not the case. Rather, most atheists are atheists, by their claim anyway, because they've had a bad experience. They've had a bad experience with someone who claimed to be a Christian. I've found this more times than not when you really dig into their, their lives, if they allow you to. Um, it's either they've had a bad experience with people who claim to be Christians, or they have the idol of sin in their life, and they're unwilling to break away from that, and they know that the God of the Bible doesn't affirm their, their sin, and so rather than give up their, their sin for the God of the Bible, they're, they're holding on to their sin, and they're giving up salvation. They're giving up the God of the Bible. So in order to feel good about themselves, what do they do? They have to eliminate God. And that's what they do in their own mind. Uh, They're not most often rejecting the God of the Bible as we know him because they don't even know him. They don't understand anything about God. But rather, they're, they're rejecting a caricature of God. They're rejecting something that maybe someone impressed upon them. Or maybe their life experience has left an indelible mark on them. Uh, maybe the way they were raised. Uh, so rather than confront directly an atheist when they say, well, I don't believe in God. Um, when they say that, I always respond this way. Have you had that view for a long time? 
That's a good question to ask. Why? Because when they answer that question, you're going to know, well, maybe they were raised in the church and they were assaulted or something. And this, what, who knows what? Um, or you can ask them, you know, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And they can talk you through that. Uh, really, rarely the person may say, I was raised to be an atheist by my atheist parents and their parents were atheists. That's very, I've never heard that. Okay, ever. Um, sometimes it would be, well, you know, I went to church when I was younger, but then I went to college, and, you know, the, the college professor proved how ludicrous God was, so I just don't believe anymore. Um, and a lot of times people like that will say things, their answer will be with a lot of anger. And you can just pick up on it. You know, I became an atheist because my evangelical father molested me. Or I was molested by a priest. Or whatever. They have a distorted view of who God is. Uh, Or maybe they just got fed up with all the phony hypocrites who claim to be Christians. That's a common response by people. But even if they give you an intellectual kind of a veneer of of an answer, uh, often the real reason is that they, they had a bad experience with a professing Christian. And what does that tell us? That tells us, you know what, when we're out there witnessing, we better make sure that we have things in order in our own lives. Help us not to be a bad representative of who Christ may be. You know, just last week I had a dealing with an individual who just was angry and he came across me as very angry and was blaming me for something that, that he did, clearly. And you know, I was rather irritated with him internally. But you know what? I just remember, okay, the best way to deal with people like this, just kill them with kindness. You know, I'm sorry, sir, if that's how you feel. And, you know, and by the end of the conversation, he was okay. You know, but I could have been a real jerk to him too and pointed out how wrong he was and how terrible he was or whatever. Uh, You know, a lot of times, it's better to respond to someone who's responding in anger to you. You know what? I'm really sorry that that happened to you. I'm really sorry that you thought that or whatever. That, that shows compassion. Um, but then after you know, dealing with an atheist, when you kind of break the, the ice with them, you can ask them this question. Is it possible that God exists, but you haven't ran across him yet? Maybe you haven't come into contact with the real God. In other words, to deny God's existence really means that you possess all knowledge in the universe. (laughs) In a simple illustration, you can use something like this. If I were to say that to you this morning, there is not a 1920 Model A Ford in Redwood City. There's not. There's not one. You would have to conclude a couple things. You would have to, first of all, think that I have comprehensive, simultaneous knowledge of every car in Redwood City. Right? I mean, there could be one driving down the freeway. Well, technically it's in Redwood City. But I'm saying, no, there's absolutely none. Um, And that's really what they're doing. They're assuming certain things. Now, I could honestly say, I don't think there's any such car as a Model T in Redwood City. But I can't be absolutely certain. See, that's, that's a rational statement. But to say that absolutely no, no way. And that's what they're doing. 
what does that turn them into? It doesn't turn them into an atheist. It turns them into an agnostic. And that's what most atheists are. They're really not atheists. They're agnostics. What's agnostic? They don't know about God. And because they haven't met him personally and they don't know about him, they don't really care to know about him, and they're justifying their own sin, they'd rather call themselves an atheist. But when you pin down both atheists and reason with them logically, and you use that, are you saying you know everything about everything? Most people would say, well, no. So then there's a chance you're wrong. There's a chance that maybe there is a God. Well, I guess (laughs) they'll finally conclude. And as far as they know, there is not a God, but they don't possess all knowledge. And so from there, you can go back and steer the conversation back to a discussion about Jesus Christ. You can ask them simple questions like, hey, have you ever read through the four Gospels? Four Gospels are the beginning of the New Testament, accounts of Christ's life. Have you ever done that? Have you ever concluded your answer to these questions? Well, who is Jesus Christ? Who did he claim to be? Uh, Could he have been merely a legend created by his followers? Why did he say that he came to earth? Do you know if there's any evidence that he was raised bodily from the dead? And when you ask those kind of questions, most people say, well, I, I didn't read about that stuff. I never even read the Bible. But they don't believe in the God of the Bible. Go figure. Uh, Some find it helpful to try to prove the existence of God to an atheist. Um, Usually that's not a fruitful approach. It's just not. God doesn't need you to prove his existence. There's nothing wrong with going down a certain path, and I'll talk about that right now. but, But most atheist problem is not an intellectual problem. It's what? It's a moral problem. They have concluded in their own being that, you know what, their sin is more important than the God of this universe. Therefore, they're going to strip God out of their fabric and say he doesn't exist, even though he does. Um, He is a sinner who is running from God because, why? He loves his sin. He loves his sin. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, we read this, I think it was on Wednesday night in our Bible study. We're going through 1 Samuel, but we referred to Romans 1. And Romans 1 says that, you know, there are, there are individuals who suppress the truth. They suppress the truth, and they do so in unrighteousness. Read it for yourself. Uh, Romans 1.18, I think it is. But the various arguments for God, I think the one that you can use if you go that route to your advantage is the argument from design, from creation. In other words, you ask the question, well, how could this world with the finely tuned balance and complexities of life, you look around, uh, start on a cell level, not to mention our own human bodies, and turn out this way by sheer chance? Is that what you're telling me? Because if there's no God, he couldn't have created it. Um, I think... Another thing that's, that's good to say to a professing atheist is simply this. You'd better be 100% certain of what you're saying. Not 75, not 80, not 99%, 100%. Because if you're wrong and Jesus is right, the instant you die, you will face God in judgment. And in your current condition, the outcome will not be pretty. Well, the second thing here, the second 
uh, question is how can a loving God send people to hell? hear this all the time. If the person professes to be an atheist, this shouldn't be a problem. Uh, If they ask this question, then you have to ask them if they're an atheist, because why would they pose a question about God if they don't believe he exists? Uh, If God exists, how can we know what he is like? Uh, You have your opinions, I have mine, but a lot of times we're just speculating with no facts. We need some revelation. Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ claimed to come to earth from heaven to reveal God to us. So either he was crazy or his claims deserve to be considered. And a lot of times when they ask a question like this, there's a lot of intelligent people down through history who have come to find that Jesus Christ's claims about himself and about who he was and about God and about salvation are true. And they'll give evidence of that. And, and Jesus spoke frequently of a place of eternal punishment for the wicked, those who reject his offer of salvation, a place called hell. Jesus spoke of that place. Uh, the other issue is this. For God to be God, he must... Be not only loving, but he also must be just and holy. Uh, An unjust judge, you can reason with them, is not righteous. You wouldn't say that they're righteous. If someone takes advantage of your child in an untoward way, and they're found guilty, and you're standing before the judge, and the judge says, well, you know, sir, try not to do this anymore to little children. You know, you're free to go. As a parent, you would be outraged, okay? Or if you had your elderly mother uh, walking in the park and a drug-addicted criminal comes up to her and at gunpoint steals $10 from her and punches her in the face and he gets caught and you're standing before the judge and the judge says something like, well, you have to understand this poor man has a disease. You know, he's addicted to drugs. I'm sure he won't do it again. We're going to let him go. Now, we laugh at that, but really that's where we are in our society today. Very true, okay? Um, You would be angry if a judge did anything like that. And that's why people are angry. Why? Because crime deserves just punishment, just punishment. And not to punish such criminals is to cheapen the lives of the people that they affect. The difference between God and even the best human judge is that God is absolutely holy. He's perfect. He will not allow any sin to enter heaven. If he did, heaven wouldn't be heaven. Because sin is what makes this earth So bad. And so the Bible says that God has declared the wages of sin is death in Romans. And that means eternal separation from your creator, God. He will be perfectly just when he judges every person. No one will get anything that he does not deserve. And we all deserve his wrath because we have repeatedly broke his laws over and over and over again. You can take them to the Ten Commandments. You can take them to the Sermon on the Mount and show them where they have broken the law of God. And then you can turn back to the skeptic who you're talking with and just say, you know, I'm just curious, how how do you think it would go with you? 
on that day when you stand before God. I mean, just say he does exist. And just say that one day you are standing before him. And then what do you do? You turn that conversation back to Christ, who bore the punishment for all those who would repent of their sin and trust in him. You can point out the truth of God's final judgment, that he will punish justly every sinner who is not trusted in Jesus Christ. But he allows us to give up uh, our, our sins to Christ, and we can be forgiven. The third thing, if God is good, some people will say, then why does he allow innocent people to suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? Well, first of all, I think the way you answer that is you admit that there is a problem of suffering in our world. You know, you can't be some pie in the sky. Oh, no, it doesn't happen. That, people think you're living in a false reality, um, especially when you see the effect on children around the world because of brutality or, or hunger or whatever it might be. It's very difficult to embrace those things. Um, but it's only a problem if you believe that there is not an all-powerful, all-loving God. Um, if there is no God, why do we have the problem with suffering? Um, it's just an evolutionary mechanism to rid the planet of the weakest of the species. What's the problem? And you can, you can go that way if you're dealing with someone who raises this question, but they're claiming to be an, an atheist. Why do you care about the starving children in India or China or anywhere else? I mean, if you don't have a God, I mean... What's the difference? It's just part of evolution. If there's no God, then how can you make a moral judgment by saying that it's evil to rape or to maim or to kill an innocent woman and their children? I mean, what basis are you making that claim? Why? Just because you say it's bad? See, and you can turn the tables on people and and begin to help them understand that, wait a minute, maybe their thinking is not rational. Um. I mean, you can even shock them and say something like, if there is no God, how can you sit in judgment on Hitler for trying to exterminate the Jews? He thought he was doing the good thing, trying to rid the world of of what he believed to be an inferior race. How can you? Who are you to say that's evil? And they begin to realize after you bring up a couple subjects like that, that, well, wait a minute, maybe my thinking is not correct. Uh, maybe eliminating God from the picture does not solve the problem of evil. People still suffer horrible atrocities, atrocities they don't deserve. Everyone is subject to disease. Everyone is subject to death. And if there is no God, then this is just a cruel, senseless, arbitrary world. Good luck. Let me know when you're interested. But if there is a God who created us and he has an ultimate purpose for us, then there is hope in this dark world, right? The Bible's explanation for why there is pain and suffering is the best one that I've found. It says that God created the world as good, but sickness, sin, catastrophes, war, and death, and all that came into this world through sin. The effects of Adam's original sin spread to the entire human race. And you can be very practical if they have children. You can say, did you have to teach your children to disobey? Do you have to teach your baby to be defiant? No. They're normally that way. That's just who they are. The only solution for human sin 
and suffering is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior from whom God, that God sent into the world. He suffered the awful judgment of God's wrath on sin on our behalf. In other words, God cared and loved so much for us that he entered this wicked, suffering world in the person of Jesus Christ who willingly took our suffering and death upon himself. And that's the path of salvation. That's the path that you can, even though you don't even believe God exists, there's still that path there for you if you're willing to yield your heart to him. If you'll turn from your sin and trust in him, God promises eternal life in a new heaven and new earth where there will be no more of this suffering and sorrow and pain and death that you're so concerned about. Also, you can just say just because you cannot um, see an or imagine a good reason why God might allow something terrible to happen doesn't mean that there can't be one. We don't know God. We don't know the purpose of God completely. We don't know the mind of God. He says his ways are not our ways, far above us. We don't have the comprehensiveness of having and the ability to have the big picture that God does. So do bad things happen? Yes, all the time. Does God allow them? Somehow he does. And if he is powerful enough to stop evil and suffering, which the Bible says that he will do someday, by the way, then he is also wise and powerful enough to have a good reason to permit some of these things to continue in the present time. Um, Your problem, you can tell them, with evil and suffering is that you are assuming that you know more than God does. That's the problem. You're not in submission to him as the rightful sovereign of the universe that he created. And frankly, you need to repent. You need to turn from that mindset, that arrogant attitude and trust in Jesus Christ to be your sin bearer. Well, fourthly, another question people ask is, why did God command Israel to slaughter entire populations and take their land? That doesn't seem to be fair. We've covered some of this on Wednesday nights as we've been going through the Old Testament. When God says, go in and wipe them all out. Don't allow any children, animals, nothing to survive. By the way, usually Israel didn't fulfill that task. They were disobedient as usual, so usually they let a couple squirters go through there and escape the impending execution in disobedience to God's command. But asking this question assumes that you know more than God does about justice and judging people on the earth. And at the heart of the question, basically they're asking this, does God have the right to judge evil people? Who is he, whether he does it temporarily or or eternally? And when you look in the Old Testament and, you know, just take, for example, the uh, case of the the, the Canaanites, God gave them over 400 years of, of continuing in idolatry, child sacrifice, sexual immorality before he commanded Israel to wipe them out. So even in his judgment, he was gracious because we serve a gracious God. Um, And he didn't leave those people in the dark, by the way, during those 400 years. Melchizedek lived in the land of of Canaan during Abraham's time, and and he knew the one true God. Also, they were not far removed from the judgment of the worldwide flood during Noah's time. They remembered that. So surely the Canaanites knew that God had the right and power to judge whomever he chose to judge. They were not innocent victims. There is no innocent victims. God allowed their iniquity to 
fill up before he judged me. In, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God presently warns us of a day coming. He says, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus warned that God will be more lenient towards the ancient people of Canaan, such as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You heard of, of those people, how evil they were. The Bible says, seems to indicate that he would be more lenient toward them than he will be toward those who have heard about Jesus and heard about his miracles but rejected him. So we don't have the right to get up on our high horse and say, oh, well, you know, if we've heard about Christ and we're rejecting him, we're, we're looking forward to the impending judgment of God. He will judge all people fairly based on the light which they had but refused to believe. So the question for you is simply this. Have you heard about Jesus Christ? Have you heard about his performed miracles to authenticate his ministry? Do you know that he died on a cross for your sins? That he was raised from the dead? He ascended into heaven. He promises to return to judge the whole earth. Um, temporary judgments of God bring things like earthquakes and floods and tornadoes, famines, things like that. But there is a, a judgment coming that will be more terrible than any. None will escape. And either you can turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith now and escape that judgment, or you will perish in that day. Well, you always want to point them back to Christ. Whenever they pose a question, just think, how can I steer this back to Christ? I want their focus to be on who Christ is. Well, what are some questions and objections they have about Christ in the way of salvation? Sometimes people will ask this question. What about people who have never heard about Jesus Christ? Does God still send them to hell? How many times have you heard that? Well, first of all, if God is truly God, then he is perfectly fair and just. He will not condemn anyone unjustly. He can't. He will judge every person fairly according to the light that person has rejected. So you have to remember the holiness of God and the the justice of God. Secondly, everyone has been given some revelation about the existence of God. In Romans chapter 1, if you turn there and read this, it it tells us. I referred to it earlier. In in verse 19, or in verse 18, it told us that... uh, the, the unbelievers will suppress the truth because of the sin. They want to suppress it. They want to do so in unrighteousness. But then verse 19 says, that which is known about God is evident to them. It's very evident. It's not something they even have to search for. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... For one, his eternal power for two, his divine nature, all those things have been clearly seen, the Bible says, being understood through what was made so they are without excuse. He goes on to show how the peoples of the world have exchanged the glory of God for man-made idols. All people, even those who know nothing about the one true God, have violated their own conscience. And they were created by God. So everyone is guilty before him. In Matthew chapter 11, as I referred to earlier, verse 20 to 24, Jesus says that there will be worse judgment for those who reject the light of God 
that has been given to them than it will be for those who had lesser light. So obviously there's some kind of degrees of hell, uh, punishment in hell. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah will punish, be punished less than those who saw and heard about Christ and still rejected him. That's a serious matter to consider. Uh, secondly, some people will say, well, I believe that there are many ways to God, right? We hear that all the time. Are uh, you telling me there's just one way, your way? Yeah. Um, and they, a lot of times people will express that, that, that statement, I believe there are many ways to God, almost with a self-righteous, condemning attitude. And they'll say something like, well, you know, I'm tolerant. I'm an intelligent, open-minded person, and I believe that all religions have some good in them. That's what they say. Uh, And what they're saying is many roads lead to the top. Maybe they'll pose a question back. Are you you so narrow-minded and intolerant to say to me that if I don't believe in Jesus like you do, that I'm on my way to hell? Is that what you're telling me? That's how they present it. See, the underlying attitude and the accusation is the assumption that what? Spiritual truth is subjective. It's relative. They don't believe in truth. Um, It's really just about whatever you like. They recreate God in their own image, and they worship him as such. And they would believe things like, well, no religion is absolutely true. There are smatterings of truth in all the the, the world's major religions, and you can pick and choose the truths that feel right to you about that. And I'm sure if you're sincere, God will understand in the way, in the, in the end. And you can counter that by just asking him a simple question. Are you then saying that Jesus was in error? And when you ask that question, they're forced to go back on their own. I believe that there's many ways and they're all equal and they're all good. Why are you telling me that Jesus was an error? Well, no, why would you say that? I'm okay with Jesus. Well, here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. <laughs> well, uh, you know, yeah, literally, you're going to take that literally? Well, that's what he said. I'm here, read it for yourself. I, I mean, I don't, it's real basic. There's no big words in the sentence. Or you can either look at Peter's reference in, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he referred to Jesus. He said, that there's no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Once again, not a lot of big words. It's a pretty simple statement. See, if those statements are true, then the other ways to God must be false. That's just basic logic. Jesus is either the only true way to God or he was mistaken. But you can't just take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of Muhammad and put them all together and you got a nice little religious pie and be happy with the outcome. That's not going to end well. Another defense is to point out that truth is very narrow because usually when they say truth, they're not talking about truth the way we understand it. They would believe in relative truth. Truth changes. And you can use a very basic illustration with them. You could say, you know what? If you went to the doctor for a sickness and he said, you know, I, 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 got, I got an answer. I got a prescription for you. But I need you to help me out here. Um, there's basically four prescriptions here. Which one do you want? 
you would probably look at your doctor and go, well, um, which one works? Right? Which one is the right one for my illness? And if the doctor said, well, you know, some people like how number one tastes. It's really good. You know, number two, it's kind of half, three, four, you know, whatever. And then some people just, they say, give them all, man. They just mix them all up and take one giant scoop. You would say this, this doctor has lost his mind. Why? Because medicine is not a matter of personal preference. Right? Either the medicine is going to work or it's not. It doesn't matter whether you like the medicine. It doesn't matter if you get to choose the medicine. It's not a matter of what you want or what you desire. It's a matter of truth. It's a matter, we hope, of fact. Scientific truth, on their, in their case. One medicine is de- designed in the best way to cure the p- specific disease that you have. And so if God objectively exists as the eternal creator of the universe, and if Jesus came to this earth as God in human flesh to reveal the Father to us, then his word is the truth and the only truth by his own claims. So as a result, all the other religions are human speculations about God. That's why they're called religions. You can use that. Well, what's the difference between religion and what you believe? Well, world religions, basically, you can sum it up in one word, do, D-O. All world religions depend on you to do something. Christianity is the exception. True Christianity, knowing the Lord personally. What do you mean? Well, I would sum Christianity up a personal relationship with the Lord in the word done, D-O-N-E. You're not trusting in what you do. You're trusting in what was done by Christ on cross for you, on the cross for you. He claimed to be the only way to the Father. Well, I don't think that's right. Another question people will say is Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't, I don't remember reading that. All you have to say, very simply, have, so you, you've read, have you read the Gospel of John? Start real basic. Most people will say, well, no, but you know, I heard that, I heard that. Well, then you direct them back to God's Word. You say, well, you know what? So you're making an, uh, an argument based on having absolutely no personal information. <laughs> you're just relying on some, somebody told you. Are you 100% that they are right? Probably not. How could you be 100% that anybody's right? So you take him to some place like John chapter 5. You can turn over there if you want. John chapter 5. Look at verses 18 to 29. Here the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he made himself equal to God. In John chapter 5 verse 18. And rather... Then correcting their accusation, and rather than saying, well, no, guys, you got it all wrong. I didn't claim to be God. You know, you, you, you don't need to kill me. That's, that's, that's not true. He didn't do that. Jesus goes on to show and give fact that he is equal to God. They should be up there on the, on the screen. He goes on, he says the, in verse 20, the Father shows Jesus everything that he's doing. Verse 21. Just as the Father can give life to anyone he wishes, so does the Son. Verse 22 and 23, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Who's the Son? Jesus. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Verse 24, whoever hears Jesus' words and believes in the one who sent them, he will have eternal life. These are all claims of deity. These are all claims that Jesus was claiming to be God. 
Or you can take them to John 18, 58, where Jesus claims to be in existence before Abraham was even born. Or go to John chapter 10, verse 28 to 33, where Jesus claims to give eternal life to his sheep and to be one with the Father. Or in John 14, 9, when he tells Philip that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Or in John 20, verses 28 and 29, when doubting Thomas seizes the risen Lord and exclaims, My Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't rebuke any of this, but he affirms these claims of deity. So just have him read the Gospel of John. Basic place to start. Fourthly, isn't Christianity merely psychological? Isn't this just a big mind game that people are playing on, making you feel guilty and dealing with all this? People raise this question often. Aren't you just making this up in your heads? If it makes you feel good to believe in Jesus and heaven, that sort of thing, well, that's a wonderful thing for you, but I don't want to go there. I believe in myself. I believe in living a good life. Well, this is another attack on the matter of absolute truth in in the spiritual realm. It assumes that religion is subjective. Um, That it's a preference that helps some who choose to believe in it, but it can't possibly be true for everyone. But it ignores, and when you, when you deal logically with people, they see this, you can talk them through the, the Christianity that is rooted in history, specifically in the history of Jesus Christ. Once again, what are you doing? You're pointing them back to Christ. He's the Savior. You can talk about the Old Testament. You can talk about specific things about Jesus. You can have them read Isaiah 53 and, and just ask them, who do you think this is talking about? Most people, even though they never read it before, sounds like Jesus. <laughs> or Psalm 22 that described his crucifixion thousands of years before his birth. Hundreds of years even before crucifixions was, was devised as a means of execution. Or you can take him to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and have him read about the resurrection where Paul stakes the entire Christian faith on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, if he's not raised, our faith is in vain, right? But if he is raised, then what? He's Lord of all. He's coming again to judge the world as he claimed. This is not merely a psychological issue. It has serious ramifications for all eternity for every person. And you can just kind of point them... In that direction, and let God do the work. Fifthly here, people will say, I've always believed in God, and I've tried to live a good life. Right? We probably, most of us have used that before we came to faith. Um, What are they trusting in? They're not trusting in Christ. They're trusting in their own personal works, their good works in their mind. And they hope that God will be nice to those one day when they stand before him because the, he's going to understand, well, you know, you've tried your hardest. I'll give you that, a boy. Go ahead. Even though, you know, you weren't perfect, that's okay. The person that those kind of people may or may not be a regular church goer. They may have a good family. They may be a decent person. They may have a wonderful marriage. They may work hard, not cheat or anything like that. Never committed a crime, done anything uh, worthy of going to prison. These are good people in our society. And he thinks somehow, he concludes, surely wouldn't God send a good person to heaven like me? They wouldn't, he wouldn't send them to hell. 
Um, and you can ask him this question. How good do you have to be to be in heaven? How good do you have to, to perform to get into heaven? Well, what do you mean? Well, would uh, ten sins keep you out? How about a hundred or maybe a thousand? I mean, do you have any idea at all what you're saying? You're, you're saying that you're, you're going to risk all eternity because you believe that hopefully in the end God will look at your life in the scales of justice and say, well, you've done pretty good. Well, how much is pretty good? And you can't even answer? I mean, at least the teacher in your class says, well, if you answer all these questions correctly, you get 100. You know what to shoot for. But you're telling me you're basing all of eternity on something you have no idea what you're talking about. Do you have any idea how many times you have violated God's holy law? And what are you doing? You're bringing it right back to Christ. You're bringing it right back to their conviction. You can take them right there to the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount. Go through the whole, you know, uh, way of the master thing. Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value? You mean stolen something? Yeah. Well, when I was little, okay, what's that make you? What do you mean? You know, because resisting. Their conscience is resisting the temptation to call themselves a thief. But eventually they do because that's what they are. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah. What does that make you? Well, I don't do it often. It doesn't matter. If you told one lie, what does it make? Well, I guess it makes me a liar. All right. And you can go through the commandments that way. And it, and it speaks directly, passes all the religious stuff, and it goes right to their heart. And it convicts them of their sin. And you can simply ask them, you know what? If you break one of God's commandments just one time, the Bible says you're guilty as if you broke all of them. And over the lifetime of sin that you admittedly have participated in, I don't know, but the odds don't seem good. I don't think you got a chance in the end if that's what you're hoping for. And usually they'll feel convicted. And you can, you can read it on their face. They'll feel convicted of their sin. And that's when you show them God's eternal remedy in Christ. Well, quickly here as we close, questions and objections concerning the Bible. Some people will say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. And usually, more than not, my experience has been that person has never read the Bible. They've never read the Bible. Uh, They've never read the Bible this way as a seeker of truth. And you just ask them, have you ever read through the Bible? Have you ever read through the Bible asking God to reveal himself to you? See, that's different. Some people read the, the Bible like a book, like a novel. And it's just so they can get past that, oh, yeah, I read the Bible. And a lot of times, my next question is, have you just read it once, or how many times have you read it? And usually, if they're just reading it as a novel, oh, I've read it once. So maybe you want to go back and read the Bible, maybe start with the Gospel of John, and ask God, hey, if this is real, if this is really what this guy says it is, reveal yourself to me. And reveal it as a, read it as a a seeker, not a skeptic. Um. The main message of the Bible is how a person can have eternal life. What's your understanding of what the Bible speaks about this crucial matter? You said you read it. If I asked you, what does the Bible teach about eternal life? And you'll probably hear some version of how, well, you need to be a good person, or you need to do the right thing, or good works. And then you can just listen and just ask them this. You know what, if you were mistaken on this, would you want me to tell you? Most people would say, well, yeah, if I am wrong, I guess. Yeah, that would make sense. Secondly, some people will say the Bible is full of errors and contradictions. 
and just call them out on it and say, well, which error or contradiction keeps you from believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I just want to know. Usually they can't even give you one. But if they do, by, by chance, because there are apparent contradictions in the Bible, but when you study them out, they, they fully come together. You want to share with that person, you know what? The Bible is amazingly consistent with itself. It was written over 40 years, or by, by, by 40 different authors, over fifteen to 2,000 years this time. When you study secular history, archaeology and history have consistently supported the biblical record. Consistently. And you can just say, you know, I've, I've been a Christian for so many years and, and I've been studying the Bible for so many years and you know what? I've never found these so-called errors or contradictions that you're talking about. As a matter of fact, the ones that I thought maybe were contradictions, always have a reasonable answer. And even if I can't answer all those questions, there's enough truth in the Bible that I'm sure that seeming contradictions come from my lack of understanding and not from God's side. God doesn't answer skeptics, but he does reward seekers. And so just... Make sure that they understand that. Read it as a seeker of truth, not a critic. Um, Thirdly, the Bible has been through so many translations. We get this a lot. And you can firmly say, you know, most modern-day translations are based on the original Aramaic, the original Hebrew, the original Greek text. And the manuscript evidence for the Bible is very, very reliable. But even where there are variants, there's no major doctrinal issue that's affected by those variances. Um, And, you know, most people are just raising that as a red herring anyway. Or they'll say, you can't take the Bible literally, can you? But the Bible must be interpreted according to its historical literacy, linguistic, cultural context. I mean, that's why when you read through the Psalms or you read through Song of Solomon, I mean, it's kind of poetic. There's figures of speeches that are to take so normally, just like you would read an a algebra book different than a, a book of poems. And you can just ask the, the question, well, which literal interpretation bothers you most and why? Because once again, usually they're just raising a red herring to get you off track. Uh, you can ask him a question. Do you understand what Jesus means when he says that, he, that we must believe in him to have eternal life and kind of steer the question back to Christ? Fifthly, I can't believe all the miracles in the Bible. The issue here is it's not whether they believe in the miracles. The issue is, goes back to does God exist? If God is God and if he spoke the universe into existence out of nothing by the word of his power, then definitely he can perform as many miracles as he wants. And just because you've never seen one does not mean that they haven't happened. How many times you can take them through history? Have you heard of things happening where you weren't there to evidence it, but you realize it's true because it's in the news, there's people that testify to it? A good book on that would be to refer to Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or the other little book, More Than a Carpenter, Speaking of Christ. talks about the empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts, all those things. Or sixthly, some people say, I believe in evolution. And you can have a lot of questions here. Um, Things like, 
you can shoot back at them. Not shoot back at them. Ask them a question. <laughs> They're our friend, not our enemy. That was a bad use of word. Uh, what conclusions are you drawing from this belief, if you, if you believe in evolution? Um, are you saying that everything in the universe happened by sheer chance without God? Do you believe that something came out of nothing? Do you think that man evolved out of a pond of scum over billions of years through random mutations and natural selection? Why does the fossil record not have billions of missing links? How could anything as intricately balanced and finely tuned as the natural world ever have happened by sheer chance? And then just ask them the question, where do you find evidence that random chance produces such evident design? Even if you had billions of years. Ask them a very practical question. Would a billion years produce a 747 jet out of nothing without a designer and a builder? How do you explain the concept of irreducible complexity? I mean, you can, you can go as deep as you want with some people. See, certain biological figures require all the parts to be together and working at the same time in certain aspects of our creation, certain animals. It couldn't happen over a long period of time. It would have never lived. And then you move to the more spiritual. If you believe that we're just a, just happened as a biological accident with no God whatsoever, I have a question for you. How do you find meaning? How do you find hope? How do you find purpose in life? Or lastly, some people will say, well, the Bible endorses slavery or the oppression of women or homophobia. Sometimes this comes out of a person who's claiming to be atheist or morally superior, superior to everybody else. And you can simply say, well, I thought you believed that moral issues are relative in each culture. Are you saying that these things are absolutely wrong? Why are you concerned about this? Do you believe then that certain things are absolutely true and binding for every culture and every age? How can you rightly judge that the Bible's views are wrong? If, in fact, the Bible teaches these things. Isn't your view as narrow and exclusive as the views in the Bible that you find offensive? And then simply ask them, you know, if I can give you reasonable answers to some of these, these issues and questions you're raising, are you saying you would become a Christian? <laughs> See, most of those kind of objections are, are purely smoke screens. The person doesn't want to face their own sin before a holy God. Now, just to answer some of these questions regarding slavery, while it was permitted in biblical times, it was far different than the expression of it in the United States of America early on in our country's history. Paul's approach to slavery eventually led to its abolition in Christian lands. It was committed Christians like Wilberforce in England and Lincoln in America who worked to abolish slavery. When you come to the subject matter of women, the Bible elevates women. It respects women far more than any other world religion does. Jesus even befriended women. He taught women in the Gospels. Women ministered to him when men did not. He first revealed himself after the resurrection to guess who? Women. Paul commands husbands to love their wives with a self-sacrificing love. 
The fact that women and men are assigned different roles in the home and in the church does not belittle women. It doesn't diminish their significance whatsoever. And regarding homosexuality, the Bible clearly teaches it to be sin. But you know what? It's not the unpardonable sin. Christ's death is sufficient to forgive and to restore homosexuals who repent, just as he does other sinners. And if you deny that it's sin, how are you determining it to be so? Who are you to say whether it's right or wrong? What is your standard? Sometimes people raise personal objections. They'll say, well, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. My answer to that is, yes, so is the world. (laughs) Uh, Jesus warned about and condemned hypocrisy. And yet many of them are in the church or in ministry. But that doesn't invalidate who Jesus was. We're not to trust in church members or church pastors or church ministers. We're to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you think that Jesus was a hypocrite? Was he phony? If not, you must trust him. Or they'll say, you know, I don't need the church cramming its narrow morality down my throat. That person has a lot of baggage. He probably was raised in a very strict home. So you might want to ask him a question, something like this. Did you have a bad experience in church or in your family as a child? And listen sympathetically as they answer. And ask God for the wisdom how to proceed with the conversation. You can ask, as, as far as you know, did Jesus have absolute standards of morality? If so, do you think he was mistaken? Or you can raise questions about how this person determines what is right or wrong. And if he ends with simply, well, you know, we should just all love one another. You can point out, well, you know what? That's interesting you say that because that's what Jesus calls the second commandment. (laughs) And steer him right back to Christ. How do we know what real love looks like? Well, Jesus set down his example for us. The supreme example of love was when Jesus died on the cross. And you can simply ask him, well, do you always love others? Have you always been loved by your parents, your mate, your children, your, your neighbors 100%? Have you loved them in return 100%? If not, you've violated God's commandment and you stand guilty before him. Direct them to the cross. Or lastly, Christianity is a crutch. My answer to this is always the same. You're correct and you're a cripple. And that's true. That's true of all of us. Uh, We all must trust in something. What are you trusting in? And you can just conclude and ask them. You know, I pray that that our time this morning will give you some practical application of everything we've been through in this series. And so when these questions arise, hopefully you'll you'll recall some answers. Um, If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior... Uh, You need a Savior to save you from God's judgment before you die. And and God sent Jesus Christ as the only Savior the world would ever have. He died on the cross for the sins, for our sins, to pay the penalty we deserve. But you have to turn. You have to repent. You have to turn from your sin to the Savior in order to possess that salvation, that eternal life that he gives you so freely. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I ask you this morning, and I think the last slide has some resources up there that you can write down or jot down or I can give them to you if you want to help you in your apologetics. You're giving a defense of those. But are you willing to turn right now from your sin and to trust Jesus Christ for eternal life? Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to be a positive influence for you in this lost and dying world. And Lord, there's a lot of ways we can do that. We can help people and assist them. But Lord, we ultimately, we need to give them the truth. We need to give them the gospel. We need to give them the only thing that can change them, the only medicine that's available from your hand to their heart. And Lord, that being the gospel, the simple facts that Jesus came to this earth as God, he was born, lived a human life for 30-some years, a perfect human life, sinless in every way, went to a cross, took upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. And as your stamp of approval upon his propitiation for our sins, his, he satisfied you in every way with his sacrifice because on the third day the Bible says that he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And that same thing can be ours if we would just simply cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to believe these truths that I'm hearing this morning. I pray that I would turn from my sin to the Savior. And as believers, we pray that as we walk out into this lost and dying world, that somehow that we would be able to speak truth into people's lives as we share the gospel, as we minister to people. Lord, trusting in you to do the work in their hearts. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close with one last song.